Amen. Lord, you truly are indeed a wonderful God. Lord, you, you alone are God. And we just are so blessed that, w- that we can hear you whisper. Because of the work of Calvary that we can draw near and have intimate fellowship with you and know you in an intimate and personal way. Father, we pray as we go to your word right now that you would be our teacher. Give each of us ears to hear what you would say to us this morning. Father, we love your word because it helps us to know you better. And Lord, that's what we desire above all else. So be our teacher, minister to every heart. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. Great to have you here. Someone said Californians don't know how to drive in the snow, but I'm glad you guys tried it anyway. God bless you. Great to have you here. It's not snowing in here. Amen? If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 3. If you don't have your Bibles, shame on you. We'll be happy to give you one if you need one. We don't want you to be without God's Word. So this morning, we're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago. We are continuing to look at this letter to the Philippian church written by the Apostle Paul. And just by the way of giving us context again, remember that this is written from a pastor's heart to people in a city where he founded the church, but now he receives a gift from them. And this gift comes by the hand of a man by the name of Epaphroditus, and when he brings the gift, Paul writes this letter back sharing his heart, the heart of a pastor, to the people in Philippi. And as he writes this letter to them, it's a letter filled with, what's the main word that we see in Philippians? Joy. Joy. Very good. So it's a letter filled with joy. Over 19 times he uses the word joy in this this short epistle. But we look at that and we think, hey, if somebody gave me a gift, I'd write a letter with joy. I'd send them a thank you note. That sounds right. Until you understand the circumstances from which Paul was writing. Because as we know, Paul wrote this from prison. Not only in prison, but awaiting his potential death. He was being chained to to soldiers every day, and he knew at any time he was going to go before Caesar Nero, and that Nero could take his life and it would be all over. But yet he's writing a letter, we hear no moaning, no complaining, nothing like that. If anything, we hear him encouraging the people in in Philippi and writing a letter filled with great joy. The reason that Paul could do that is Paul got it. Paul said in chapter 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What he said was, look, my life is all about Jesus and when I die it's only going to get better. So you can't threaten me with heaven. And he saw everything that went on in life as an opportunity for the gospel. You chain me up to guards, I've got a captive audience, I'm preaching Jesus to these guys. Where are they going to go, right? And so he'd be chained to these guys, he'd witness to them, but also... Because of the trials he was going through, he was going to get to stand in front of Nero and preach the gospel. Paul was not worried about this guy taking his head because he said, if he does, I'll be in the presence of Almighty God and that's better anyway. But if not, I get to witness to somebody I never would have been able to witness to otherwise. Often that's what happens in our trials, you guys. God allows us through difficulties to to minister to people we never would be able to otherwise. He had an eternal focus. He wasn't worried, and so he's writing this letter back, no doubt answering some of the questions. In chapter 1 and chapter 2, he's talking to these people who are concerned about his life. 
They love Paul. He's their pastor. They hear that he's in prison. They're worried about whether or not he's going to survive. And so he writes this letter back and lets them know right off the bat, guys, don't worry about me. God's in control. He's got me here for a reason. Trust the Lord. You couldn't threaten him again with heaven. How do you have such joy in such dire circumstances? None of us have faced the trials that Paul has, and yet he has great joy, and we can learn from his example because he was so focused on heaven that the things of this world couldn't get him down. Then we got to chapter 2, and we talked about not just having joy in our circumstances, but joy in spite of people. Because people can rob us of our joy, amen? And you can rob others of their joy with your attitude sometimes, amen? It's a two-way street. But how do we have joy in spite of people, in spite of a boss who's a jerk, in spite of a neighbor who, you know, Starts her chainsaw at 6 a.m. or whatever, right? In spite of all the trials and difficulties of life, how can we continue to have joy? Well, we talked about the acronym Jesus, Others, Yourself. When you put Jesus first and others next and yourself last, you will have joy. When you have that mind, that submitted mind, a mind that's submitted and esteems others greater than ourselves. So we come to chapter 3, and he's talked about having joy in spite of people, having joy in spite of our circumstances, And last two weeks ago, just to remind you that we finished off the second half of chapter 2 talking about the impact of having intimate fellowship with the Lord. When you have intimate fellowship with God, everything changes. And when you don't, everything's difficult because you're doing it on your own. And through intimate fellowship, we have a different way of viewing death. We don't see it as a source of fear, but a source of rejoicing. Guys, Christians die well, amen? If I go to heaven before some of you, if, we're, if we don't, we're not here and Lord tarries and I get hit by a bus, you know, I told my wife, put me in a hefty bag, leave me on the curb and have a party, because it doesn't matter. I'm going to be in the presence of Almighty God, and here's the truth, I won't be thinking about you. So don't be worried about me, amen? And that's the whole point, that for us as believers, we die well, and when we have intimacy with God, we long to be in His presence. It's not something to try to stay away from. But it's something to be looked forward to. Amen? It's graduation day for the believer. It also impacts how we see our lives, whose plans and passions and desires we seek to follow. And it also impacts how we respond to illness and the weakness and difficulties of life. It doesn't give us an excuse to do nothing for God, but instead we see it as an opportunity. So now we get to chapter 3. Continuing this letter filled with joy. And this, again, as a true born-again believer... He's going to talk to us about rejoicing in the Lord. Guys, where does our, where's our source of joy? It's the Lord. And when we are walking in intimacy with God and we have a relationship with the Lord, then we're going to live lives filled with rejoicing. Guys, let me say this. A Christian ought to be a joyful person. Amen? Is that true or not? You're not too joyful this morning. All right? We ought to be joyful. Why? Because we know where we're going. We know what we've been saved from. Our best friend created the universe. We're walking in the spirit of the living God. It doesn't get any better. And yet, we walk. too many Christians walk around looking like someone kicked your dog. Like you've been sucking on lemons or whatever, you know. And we're just, oh, but my, oh. You know, what kind of testimony is that? Galatians 5.22 says, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and joy. And we have that when we're focused on the Lord. Peter speaks of rejoicing with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. Jesus said to his disciples that when they see him again, their hearts will rejoice and no man will be able to take their joy from them. You know what? As we walk with God, nobody or nothing can take our joy from us. Amen? 
That's where our hearts need to be, you guys, getting past looking at these physical characteristics of life that drag us down. Paul's going to go on the rest of the chapter to warn them of things that will rob them of their joy. And in this morning's text, we're going to see that those of us who receive the gospel of grace, just like the Philippian church, we too ought to understand where our source of joy is and heed the warnings in the text this morning of three things that can rob us of our joy. So if you're you're a note taker, I encourage you to take notes even if you don't read them again. You know, every time I listen to a message, I take notes. I, I rarely go back and read them, but while I'm taking notes, it just keeps me on track. I don't know about you guys, but it helps me. Good thing I have. I, I'm into notes a little bit, right? Now, title of the message is Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And then we're going to see three warnings of things that can diminish or rob us of our joy. The first thing we're going to see is self-righteousness. When we start to think that we've arrived, we start to think that we're somehow, God's just so blessed to have me on his side. What would he do without me? You know, and you know what happens when you get self-righteous? The thing that comes next is legalism. Because you think you've arrived, now you start judging everybody else because they're judged by your standard of what you think is righteous. And since you're self-righteous, you've obviously got it all figured out. So the first thing that can rob us of our joy is we start to get puffed up, putting our faith in our accomplishments or in religious rituals through legalism rather than putting them in the Lord. The second thing that can rob us of our joy, and this is a big one for many of you this morning, focusing on the past. Focusing on the past will rob us of our joy. As we will see in the text today, that again, there are things in our past that may need to be addressed and dealt with, but we are not to linger there and we're not to dwell on it forever. Amen? He who the sun sets free is free indeed. If you're a, if you're a new, cre- you're new creations in Christ, amen? And again, we deal with those, we'll talk about that. And then thirdly, the thing that can rob us of our joy is having a worldly or temporal focus instead of having a heavenly one. You know what, our joy will be robbed. If, if you're waiting for your circumstances to be perfect to have joy, you're never going to be happy. Because your circumstances will never be perfect. There'll always be something more you need. So let's begin this morning looking again at rejoicing in the Lord. Three things that can diminish our or rob us of our joy, beginning with a self-righteous attitude that leads to legalism. Being, again, physically self-absorbed rather than spiritually broken. Look at verse 1 of Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, I love Paul. He's one of my favorite guys in the Bible because uh, a lot of the things I get accused of doing, he does. So it comforts me. People say I use my hands a lot when I talk. But you know that Paul, in Acts, says he motioned with his hands while speaking. I said, praise the Lord. There it is. I got a biblical example. Also here, it says he says, finally, in chapter 3. He's not even close to being done. He's a pastor. Watch out for that finally. That doesn't really always mean it, does it? Now finally, now the final point, they're like, he said that 20 minutes ago. Well, he says finally, he's only halfway through. But he's emphasizing a point. Again, pastors were no different 2,000 years ago. He says, finally, my brethren. So he's talking to fellow Christians. What he's about to say applies to believers. People who have been born again. People who are walking in, in the fullness of the Spirit of the living God. So the context is, 
the letters written to my brethren. So he says, finally, my brethren rejoice in the Lord. Guys, we cannot rejoice in the Lord if we're not his kids. Amen? Guys, the cross of Christ is either a stone, it is a place of judgment or a place of forgiveness or salvation. It all depends on how you look at the cross and how you look at Jesus Christ. I love the cross. I love the cross. I love what Jesus did for me there. It's the greatest symbol of love there ever has been. The cross of Christ. Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus did for us. But the cross to many is something that stumbles them and they don't like it. Why are people going to court to get crosses taken down? Nobody's going to court to get the Buddha out of the Chinese restaurant. You ever notice that? But they want to get the crosses taken down. Why? Because it offends them. Because the cross of Christ is a stone of offense. People don't like it because it's a a halogen light that we're sinners in need of a Savior. But it says, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. We cannot rejoice without the Lord. Guys, the world cannot have joy apart from Jesus Christ. You can have temporary happiness built on physical satisfaction, but that will always fade the joy that we have that comes from the lord will endure forever and it's only going to get better Man, i can't do you ever think about heaven Man, i get a headache when i think about heaven how about you because no matter how great you think it's going to be it's going to be greater than that and we're all going to be there isn't that awesome now that's only true if you're his brethren Oh man, I'm here and I got invited to church and this guy is talking about people who aren't saved. You know what? You're here by divine appointment if you don't know Jesus and I want you to know he loves you so much he'd rather die than live without you and you can walk out of here a new creation in Christ and you don't have to join a church or give anything. Just simply say, yes, I'm a sinner and I want Jesus to be my Savior and you know what? He'll answer that prayer every single time. Amen? Amen. That's God's heart. He wants to give to you. He loves you guys. You're his treasured possession. But that joy only comes if we're in the Lord. You know, it's hard to rejoice in the world. The financial difficulties, the health problems, the family issues, the violence going on all around us, all these trials and struggles and difficulty. Hard to rejoice in the world, but man, it's easy to rejoice in the Lord. It's so easy. In our salvation, in our position in Him, the promise of heaven... Worldly temporal focus, hard to rejoice. Eternal godly focus, easy to rejoice. But it says rejoice in the Lord, where the believer dwells, unrelated to his circumstances of life, an unchanging relationship with sovereign, almighty God. And again, it's impossible to have that joy if we do not know the Lord. What's interesting, many believe that this is a phrase that had taken the place of the Old Testament, hallelujah. They would say rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Even a greeting. And here Paul's writing to them and he's saying, Rejoice in the Lord. You know what? If I want to encourage you, if you remember anything from today's message, walk out of here knowing that we ought to be rejoicing in the Lord, not being drugged down by our circumstances. Then he says this For me to write these same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Here's another thing I love about Paul he's repetitive. I don't even have to say anything. (laughs) I'm all about repetition. You know why? Because God's Word is all about repetition. Amen? 
It cracks me up. Someone will say, what book are you studying at church? Philippians, I've already read that. I'm not going to come to you. You're done with that book. We're not reading a novel. This is the living, breathing word of God. Amen? I heard this illustration. This is a true story. This pastor got up and talked about the love of God and loving others. And he taught this message to his huge church and taught it. And the next week he came back and taught the same message, word for word, same illustrations, everything. Then the next week he taught it again. And people started to think he was out of his mind. And people said, Pastor, why do you keep teaching the same message? He said, when you start living it, I'll teach something else. (laughs) And the truth is that we need to hear it again and again and again and again. Amen? Amen. And Paul's repetitive. He uses his hands. He says, finally. And he's, no wonder I love this guy. (laughs) The Bible has a lot of repetition because we need it. And Paul says, it's not tedious for me. It's a joy for me. I don't mind reminding you. I don't mind repeating it to you because you need to hear it again. He says there, for you, it is safe. It is a safeguard that protects the Philippian church from succumbing to the things of the world around them to hear the exhortations over and over and over again. We need to hear it. We need to be strengthened. Now let's take a look at the self-righteous legalism and how it manifests itself. Look at verse 2. So now he's going to start warning them. Rejoice in the Lord, and then here comes the warning. Here's the warning. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. Now what's he talking about? He's talking about the Judaizers. He says, beware of dogs. Now wherever Paul went, there was always a crowd following him. A crowd of people trying to pick off his converts and draw them away to their own belief system. It's amazing how this happens often. Where God's moving... People show up trying to get involved in what God's doing, but yet often to draw them away to a lie. Who were the Judaizers? Well, the Judaizers were the ones who believed that before you could be a Christian, you had to first become a Jew. So the first thing you had to do is you had to observe all the Jewish rites, including things like circumcision. And they said, if you don't keep these laws, then you can't, you got to be a Jew before you can become a Christian. You know, what's sad today is there's a big move of that in the church right now. Guys, Hebrews, entire book written by a Jew to the Jews, telling them to quit being Jews. Amen? We're not, we're not Jews, nor Greeks, nor Gentiles anymore. We're either believers or unbelievers. Amen? And there's this thing, oh, I'm going to this, this synagogue and I'm doing all this stuff because it just brings me closer to... They're blind. They need Jesus. Amen? Now, the Lord loves them. They've been gifted in a, lot, in a great way. I'm going, we're going to Israel here in a week and a half, many of us from the church. And God bless them. We need to pray for Israel. Amen? But the answer is not anything other than Jesus Christ. And so he says, beware of these dogs. Now, what's interesting is dog was a word that was used by the Jews, speaking of Gentiles. Remember that? This is not a family pet they're talking about. This is not, you know, the golden lab at your house that you brush and pet. This is not, this is not what he's talking about. He's talking about scavenger animals that eat garbage, bark all night, attack people that nobody wants to be around. And they call Gentiles dogs, filthy. And Paul calls these Judaizers, these Jewish guys, dogs. Because they were carrying around dangerous infections. They were carrying around something that everybody they came in t- contact with They would infect. Beware of evil workers. These are the ones who taught 
that salvation came through good works. Any attempt to please God by one's own efforts and to draw attention away from the work of Christ is the worst kind of wickedness. Let me say that again. Any effort to take away from the cross and add to it anything else as a requirement for salvation is nothing short of wickedness. Because it makes Jesus a liar. What did he say on the cross? Last words. What were they? Does house die, which means? It is finished. He didn't say, here's a good start. He didn't say, that's step number one. He said, it's finished. And when we add to it and say, oh yeah, but you've got to be baptized in our baptismal. No, but you've got to keep our rules and our rites and our rituals. Oh, you've got to have this thing and this first Holy Communion and this thing and your last rites. Hey guys, Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Amen? Amen? And when you start adding to the Christ, you're an evil worker. He says, beware of the evil workers. Beware of those who are going to come in and try to add to the cross of Christ. He says, beware of the mutilation. Mutilation here refers to circumcision because they taught you had to be circumcised. They're trying to bring people back under the law. And Paul refers to them as being similar to the prophets of Baal who cut themselves and mutilated their bodies in frenzied frenzied rituals. The Judaizers' empty rituals were merely nothing more than than physical mutilation. You know, good works done by the Judaizer really was an evil work because they were done by the flesh and not the spirit. Guys, it's so important that we understand that the law is not something that we try to achieve to be acceptable to God, but it is a mirror that reveals our sin and our desperate need for God. And then once we are saved, we should be different, but it should be the power of the Holy Spirit, not the attempts of our flesh. Look at verse 3. Now look what it says of the circumcision in comparison to the Judaizers. For we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. This is the exact opposite of the Judaizers who are in Philippi who are saying it's all about what you can do. People get so frustrated with me sometimes. I've had people come to my office. I've had people get in my face and scream at me to say, we got to do more for God. We've got to, you know, and just get angry. And I'll say, whoa, bro, slow down. Hey, so what Jesus did on the cross, is that sufficient or not? Yeah, but you're cheapening God's grace because, you know, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to. Hey, you know what? We don't got to, we get to. Amen? And when I fall in love with the Lord, it's a natural outpouring. I'm not striving so God will love me. I'm responding to the, the fact that He already does. Do you know that there's nothing you can do to make God love you more than He already does? What a great God we serve. You know, I love my kids, all four of them equally, and I would die for any of them. And you know what? If their grades are better, I don't love them more. I'm happier, but I don't love them more. I love them the same because they're my kids, and we're His children. And true circumcision is not a spiritual change. It's a spiritual change, not a physical one. The fruit is that we worship God empowered by the Spirit. The source of our joy is that intimate fellowship with the Lord. And we have no confidence in our flesh. You know, if you have confidence in your flesh, wow. Pride. Guys, we will never have arrived. Do you understand that? Can we always be closer to God no matter where we're at? What's the answer? Absolutely. And too often we get, well, I've been saved a long time and, you know. I'm just kind of pretty much got it all figured out. 
And I'm just here now to straighten you guys out. I'm so blessed that I chose to come to church here. The Bible says, In our flesh dwelleth no good thing. Yet most people rely entirely on fleshly pursuits in their attempts to please God. You ask somebody, you ask a person who would say, I'm not a Christian. If you're going to go to heaven, how would you get there? Well, I, I, I give to charity. I do good deeds. I'm a nice person. I've never killed anybody. Right? That's the standard. Good works. But here's the thing. You ever told a lie? Well, yeah. Ever lusted in your heart? Yeah. You ever hated anybody? Yeah. So you are a murderer. And you are an adulterer and you're a liar because that's what the Word of God says. But guess what? It's by grace that we're saved, not our works. Aren't you glad? And so he's telling them it's not confidence in our flesh, but it's faith in Almighty God that will bring us the true joy. And that circumcision of the flesh means nothing if there's been no transformation of the heart. He actually has a play on words in the original language here between mutilation in verse 3, 2, and circumcision in verse 3. And what he's saying is, fleshly rights or physical rights are of no value if they are not reflected in a spiritual transformation. And the same is true today. You have Old Testament pictures of New Testament principles. Guess what? Water baptism means nothing if you've not given your life to Jesus Christ. Every time we have a major baptism down on the beach, people will come up and want to be baptized. And praise God for that. But people will be walking their dog. And they want to get baptized. They see people get baptized and say, Oh, that's a good idea. I should do that. Then you start asking them, Well, praise God, you want to be baptized. Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Well, no, I just want to be baptized. Well, do you realize you're a sinner? Well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I don't think I'm a sinner. But I want to be baptized. Thinking that if, well, in case there is a God, I'm going to score some brownie points and get dunked, and then I can point back to that later if I have to. <laughs> Guys, these rites and these rituals mean nothing if there's no heart transformation. Water baptism is an outward statement of an inward change. It's a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's what happens to us when we're saved. We die to the person we used to be, and we're raised again in Christ, new creations in Him. It's a public confession. It's an outward statement of an inward change. And it means nothing if our life has not been transformed. The same is true for communion. Taking communion. We take communion looking back to the cross looking within and examining our own hearts and looking forward to heaven. But you can take communion every single day, five times a day for a hundred years, and it won't get you any closer to heaven if you're not repentant and broken over your sin and have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and invited Him into your life. But yet people will think communion is the answer. Baptism is the answer. Some rule, some rite, some religious thing. I go to church on Sunday because I'm supposed to fulfill this requirement. Guys, we should never be at church because we're trying to fulfill a requirement. We ought to be here because we love the Lord and we want to worship Him and know Him better. No other reason. Not trying to score brownie points with God. Well, I got drunk last week, so I better go to church so I can weigh the scale out. (laughs) You act like, you know, go to church, give to charity, go on this side and drunkenness and partying and cussing and screaming at my wife and I, was like, I just got to keep the, the things in balance you know right 
Aren't you glad that isn't how it works? We'd be in big trouble. We'd have like Mack trucks mounted up over here and some feathers on this side, right? We'd be in big trouble. By God's grace, it's not us trying to balance things out by keeping rituals, but it ought to be a picture of what's happened in our lives and something we do from a joyful heart. Look at verses 4 through 6. Though I might also, also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. Paul's going to refute these Judaizers who claim to be holy and says, you think you guys have got it going on? If you want to look at it from a fleshly perspective, nobody's got it more knocked than me. Paul is telling them, you want to be judged by your Judaism, your your Judaizer standards? I'd be in the head of the class. Because Paul indeed was and did fulfill all the, quote, promises or the the laws that were set out by the Judaizers. Look what it says there. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Why? Circumcised on the eighth day. So he was circumcised on the day aligned with the Jewish law. So even from his birth, he was set aside to follow the Jewish law. He says there, of the stock of Israel. He's a descendant of Abraham. Isaac and Jacob, Israel, he had a pure heritage. Of the tribe of Benjamin, this is the second son of Rachel, one of the elite tribes of Israel, who along with Judah remained loyal all the way through the time of David and formed the southern kingdom. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He maintained the Hebrew language, the Hebrew traditions in the midst of paganism all around him, and he was a Pharisee. Who were the Pharisees? These were guys, the most elite of the Jews. These were the zealous, legalistic, fundamentalist of Judaism whose passion was to apply the Old Testament scriptures to everything to the point where they had deep, deep traditions and rituals that became works of righteousness. So this is as high as it gets. You want to find the guy who's the Jew of all Jews, the Judaizer of all Judaizers, the guy who's kept the law better than anybody? It was Paul. And Paul said, you guys want to use those standards? I would be at the head of the class. Verse 6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. How zealous was Paul for the Jewish faith? What did he do? What was he doing when he finally came to know Jesus? Where was he going? Where was he going? He was going to attack Christians. We know that Paul was holding the coats while they stoned Stephen to death. This guy was zealous for a lie. And guys, a lot of times we equate zeal with righteousness, but guess what? Zealous for a lie is not righteousness. Are there people zealous for a lie today? The whole Muslim faith, zealous for a lie. Pastor Dave, why do you got to call out other religions by name? Every time I do that, someone asks me, because it's a lie. Amen? It's a lie. Now, do we love the people? Absolutely. Do you want to see them saved? You better believe it. Does the Lord love them every bit as much as he loves us? Without question. We're one beggar leading another beggar to the bread, but we need to point out the lie. And they were zealous for a lie, and Paul was zealous for a lie. And praise God that while Paul was being zealous for a lie, that God knocked him off his high horse and opened up his eyes. Because it wasn't rules, and it wasn't rituals, and it wasn't religion, and it wasn't self-righteous pursuits. 
It was intimate head-on collision with Jesus Christ that transformed his life. And the same is true for everybody in this room. It's not rules. It's not religion. It's not self-righteousness. It's not getting rid of another bad habit. It's falling in love with Jesus. Now look what it says here. But what things were gained to me, verse 7, these I have counted lost, lost for Christ. Here's what's interesting. The word there for gain is an accounting term. The things that I thought were a profit to me were really a loss, were really a business loss. And he's going to give these religious credentials that they thought would be in the profit column, and he's going to show how worthless they really are. I count all things lost. Yet indeed, verse 8, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. First thing, all the Jewish credentials that people would think were important, he's going to wipe them out. The first thing he talks about is his ancestry. He was a descendant of Abraham. Is that true? What's the answer? Yes, he was. But guess who he was a descendant of also? Adam. Guess what Adam was? Sinner. And so we want to, talk, we want to point to our ancestry. Well, let's point to our ancestry. Every one of you, Sinner. That doesn't, that doesn't go in the uh, seeker-sensitive handbook, by the way. I would have just been thrown out of the club for that, right? But you're sinners in need of a Savior. Amen? Amen? Every one of you. Me too. And here's the interesting part, is that they were so puffed up in their heritage, but their heritage really was that they were sinners. Well, we keep the law and our righteous traditions. But the Bible tells us salvation is through Christ alone, and that our righteousness is as what in the Bible? Filthy rags. So you want to talk about your heritage? You're, you come from a line of sinners. You want to talk about your righteousness? The Bible tells us your righteousness is as filthy rags. You want to talk about your position, a Pharisee, a religious leader, one who's honored and praised by men. The Bible says if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be what? Servant of all. Amen? So he's, the things that they're puffed up about are just in total contradiction to what the Bible would say. When Paul met Jesus, he realized how sinful his claims of righteousness were, and he lost that which was perishing and gained that which is eternal. One of my favorite statements is, was, said, was written by a missionary who was not long after that killed. He said, a man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Giving away that which is temporal to gain that which is eternal. May we not fall into the trap of finding our identity in our position among men. How much possessions we have. Our righteousness. Our good deeds. You know, our plaque. A plaque with our name on it. You know, guys, by the way, some churches do this. But, you know, I don't know if you knew this. We're getting chairs in three weeks. So God bless you guys, all right? Soft ones, right? No napping or the metal chairs are coming back out. But we're not, you know, we're not raising funds and putting names on back of chairs so that, you know, we don't do, that's not what God wants us to do. Only one person's name ought to be on the church. Jesus Christ, amen? Nobody else's. Touch not the glory. Don't get puffed up in your achievements. You know what, guys? This example of, of examining his own life, he counted all things lost for the knowledge of Christ. He said, you know, everything I thought was important means nothing in comparison of the knowledge of knowing the Lord. Nothing else matters compared to knowing Him better. Guys, we ought to be thinking that way with every decision we make. 
Is this going to make me know God better by doing this? By taking this job? By moving to this place? By entering into this relationship? Whatever it might be, is it going to draw me closer to God? If the answer is not emphatically yes, don't do it. Because it's better to be in the center of God's will than to have anything that the world might want to offer us. May our identity be completely in Christ, our riches in Him. As it says in Ephesians 1, we've been blessed, chosen, adopted, accepted, redeemed, forgiven, given an inheritance, sealed and assured. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now look what Paul says. He says, I count all loss and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. The knowledge of Christ, the word for knowledge there means to know Him personally. Not know about Him, but know Him. Let me ask you a question. Don't raise your hand, but think about it. How many of you know Jesus Christ intimately this morning? I used to use this analogy in youth group. I know a lot about Michael Jordan. I know a lot about him. Michael Jordan, I know, I can tell you where he went to college in North Carolina. I can tell you how many championships he won. I can tell you, you know, a little bit about his background. I can tell you that he played baseball for a while. I can tell you a lot about Michael Jordan. I can tell you, I can point to some of the games he had and the things that he did. But if I got in an elevator with Michael Jordan, he'd have no idea who I am. And there are people today that know a lot about Jesus. They can tell you that he lived 2,000 years ago. They can tell you that he went to the cross. They can tell you that he rose from the dead. They can tell you some of the miracles he, could, he performed. But you know what? They don't know him personally. Jesus Christ should be your best friend. Amen? Be married to him. Grafted into him. Paul saw his good works and position as rubbish. The word there for rubbish is actually manure. Everything I thought was important was Manure. Stuff was manure. We're going to work and we're just shoveling manure. And the things that we prize so much, you know, it's ground fill. As believers, our number one passion in life should be to grow in the knowledge of Him. Our careers, our possessions, our positions, all manure in comparison to our relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? Nothing else matters. We're not going to get to heaven and say, I wish I had remodeled my house one more time. <laughs> should have planted those roses out back, you know. I, I should have strived harder in my job. We'll never do that. But we will stand before God, before we enter in, where there will be no more tears, and we will weep over what we could have done and didn't because we were so involved with ourselves instead of His kingdom. I know it's an exhortive word, but you know what? That's what the Bible is. Amen? The Lord loves us enough to exhort us. Verse 9, And be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Where does our righteousness come from? It comes through faith in Christ. It doesn't come from good works, as we've said. He's repetitive here. But it comes through intimate fellowship with the Lord by placing our faith in Him. Being clothed in His righteousness when we have faith in him he imputes righteousness to us now i'm going to share an illustration with you one of my favorite illustrations on verse nine and i love this i've heard it many times maybe some of you have if you have forgive me but being clothed in righteousness that comes from god as opposed to our good works and there's a simple illustration there was a young woman who was very poor growing up and she had worked very hard and very sacrificially to get through college and now she had 
forsaken everything and lived in a small little room she rented and worked two jobs. And finally, she's worked so hard and graduation is coming near. And they're going to have a grad night ball in association with graduation. And now because she's finally done this, she's so excited, she decides, I want to go to that ball. But she didn't have any money because she spent it all just struggling to get by. So what she did was she took what little money she had and she went down to the thrift store and she bought the best material she could. It wasn't very nice, but she bought it anyway. She got herself one of those little cut-out patterns. I remember my mom using those simplicity patterns. Anybody ever heard of those? And you cut the little thing out and you make the dress. So she bought a little simplicity pattern and took this material that she had and she took it home and she cut it out and she did the best she could. Now she had never really sewn anything before, but through trial and error she kept sewing and pulling it apart and re-sewing it and putting the seams together again and you know, and eventually when she was done, it, it looked okay. Him wasn't really straight. The slate, sleeves were a little uneven. But she did the best that she could. And then she went out into the dorm where all the other girls were and said, Hey girls, come look. Here's my dress for the, for the senior ball. And they all came out and they saw it and they were very nice to her. And they saw that, hey, that's, they said that's nice, being kind. They noticed that it had imperfections all over it and they felt rather sorry for her but they knew it was the best that she could do. About that time, in walks Lady Bountiful. This woman walks in and, I don't know, she probably just got done donating a building to the college, I don't know, but she walks in and sees this girl standing here in this pitiful attempt at a dress. And, re- and looking at her and seeing her desperate need, she asked her, I'm going to run a few errands, would you please come with me? And the young girl said, okay, I'll go with you. And she goes outside and there's a chauffeured limousine and they drive her down to the fashion district and they walk into this, this beautiful fashion show. And they're sitting there at this fashion show and these women are coming out wearing these beautiful gowns. And as they walk by, they stop and they pose like they do and eventually one girl comes out in the most beautiful dress this young woman had ever seen. And when she saw her, she just gasped. Oh, wow, that's so beautiful. Well, Lady Bountiful, seeing that she noticed it, calls the woman over that they might examine the material. And she touches it. It's the softest, most beautiful material she's ever seen. But then when the girl goes to walk away, she notices the price tag, $4,950. The girl thinks, I didn't think there was anything in the world that cost that much. She probably spent $5 on her material and her pattern trying to make herself a dress. Well, though... Lady Bountiful was very astute, noticed her interest and said, wrap it up. Went over to the clerk and said, wrap it up, put it in the car. When they got back to the room, she went in and laid it on the girl's bed and she opened it up and, what's this? She said, that's for you. I can't possibly pay you back. She said, don't worry, it's okay. So she reached down and put the dress on. It fit perfectly. It was the most beautiful thing she'd ever seen. She walks out into the dorm this time And when the girls come out, she says, girls, look at my dress. The girls came out, and they were blown away. And as they stood there in awe of this beautiful dress, the girl said to them, this is something I never could have purchased for myself. This is something I never could have made. But it was given to me, not because of anything I've done, but because somebody loved me enough to give it to me. Paul had done his best to clothe himself in good works. He attempted to make himself righteous through his own efforts, but then he came into the glorious knowledge of Jesus Christ and he no longer found that his own righteousness was good enough. 
his own making, his own work. It paled in comparison to the free gift that was available to him. No longer did he have to be clothed in his best attempt anymore, but he was clothed in the perfection of Jesus Christ. What are you trying to be clothed in today? Trying to be clothed in your good works? If you are, it doesn't look as good as that $5 dress. But you know what? If you're clothed in him, it looks better than anything anybody could ever put on you. Amen? May we be clothed in him. Verse 10 that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. The fellowship of Christ. The word means to have in common. So we love the first half of that verse. The power of His resurrection. Who wants the power of the resurrection? Raise your hand. Okay, let's read the rest of the verse. See how excited we are. The power of His resurrection and the what? The fellowship of His what? Oh, wait a minute. No, 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 no. Christians don't suffer. Right? Some people on TV would tell you that. Christians don't suffer. You get saved and you just tell God what you want and He has to give it to you. You just have to have enough faith. Lord, Cadillac. Right? I know it doesn't work because, Lord, hair. Right? It's not happening. doesn't work. Now, here's the point. It's not manipulating God into giving us stuff. The power of the resurrection is that we walk in newness of life and we have the promise of heaven. And you know what? We can enjoy the fellowship of His sufferings because the Bible says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you for my name's sake, for so they did for the prophets that went before you. Amen? So why do we as Christians think that our life should be a cruise ship to heaven when we're living in the midst of people who are desperately in need of the Lord and an enemy is all around about us? Satan's resources are limited. Who's he going to attack? The ones God's using most. And as Manny Barron would say, if you're being attacked, you're blessed. God must be using you, amen? And praise the Lord. And we see here that if I'm crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Our flesh will always rebel against suffering. We don't want to suffer. We want to escape suffering. But you know what? Who's the ultimate example? Jesus Christ. And He could have escaped the suffering of the cross, but He didn't. Why? Because He knew through His suffering that we all would be blessed. And guys, through our suffering and through our difficulty, we die to ourselves and we're able to minister to others. You know, I found this to be true in my own life. The greatest difficulties I've been through have always, and here's the word, always turned into an opportunity for ministry later. How many of you have found that to be true? You're in the middle of it, and you're like, what in the world is God going to do with this? And here you go six months, nine months, a year later, and man, there it is. I can minister to somebody because I've gone through it myself. We're not going to finish the chapter if you're panicking, all right? I won't say finally, though, because then I'm... Verse 11... If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Guys, until we know the power of the resurrection, we must first share in the sufferings of His death. Before we can live a resurrected, powerful life filled with the Spirit of the living God, we must first die to ourselves. If any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That is the exact opposite of what the world tells you to do. The world says esteem self. The Bible says deny self. World says, magnify what you want. I was listening to a pastor on TV last Sunday morning while I was getting dressed who said, 
You know the problem with most Christians is we don't spend enough time focusing on ourselves. <laughs> what planet do you live on? I'm always on my mind. How about you? I'm always thinking about me. That's my problem. I got Dave on the brain when I don't have the Lord there. Amen? Everything is, how does it impact me? We don't vote on what's bad, good for everybody. We vote on how it impacts me. Well, he's going to cut my tax? I vote for him. I don't care what he has to do to everybody else. Help me. We are so self-centered and so self-focused. The Bible says you want to be great, deny self and esteem him. Amen? You want to know the power of the resurrection? You got to die first. We had a Valentine's dinner a few years back. And Pastor Rob, who was a, I was a high school pastor, he was a junior high pastor at Calvary San Jose. The title of his message at the Valentine's banquet was, Someone's Gotta Die. I'm like, bro, that is so romantic. Makes you want to just run out and buy some flowers. But his whole message was, if you want your marriage to be blessed, you need to die to yourself and love the other person more than you love yourself. The great commandment was love the Lord your God, right? Heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Guys, love God first, love others next, put yourself last, and you'll have joy. You want to rejoice in the Lord? Don't get caught up in your own physical desires and pursuits. Is it a daily battle? Absolutely. How many of you, it's a daily battle? Isn't it? Then your flesh, then your flesh say, feed me, right? It makes sure, feed me. Bible says desire the word of God more than your necessary food. But we walk by that fridge. I mean, there's a reason those hinges are real solid on a refrigerator. Because that bad boy goes up, right? I don't know how many times a day I eat, but it's too many. And the point is that we desire God's word more than necessary food. We make sure our flesh is fed, our flesh is cared for. We won't go to church because our flesh might be too cold getting there. Is that true? Now, you guys are here, so I'm preaching to the choir. You showed up on this snow day. So God bless you guys. Amen? But the point is that we are so physically, fleshly focused that we will not know the power of His resurrection until we die to ourselves and esteem Him greater. Lord, not my will, but Thy will be done. Is that not what Jesus said in the garden? Not my will, but Thy will. Do I want to go to the cross? No. But will I? Yes. Why? Because it's about Your will, not mine, and because I desire to see those people saved. Guys, it should not be my will, but His, because we want to see those people saved. We want to see lives impacted for His kingdom. We're going to finish there, okay? Now next week, I want to encourage you, read the rest, because one of the key things, when you get down to verse 14, and I want you to read ahead, but He talks about not focusing on the past, and I'll tell you what, I think this is an epidemic in the church today. People are so, so gripped in their past that they can't do anything for God today. Now again, we'll talk about it next time, but I want you to know that why we should, there's time we need to have prayer, yes. Should we have counseling over struggles from our past? Yes. But should we live there for the next 10 years? Absolutely not. Amen? God, can He deliver you from that? Can He bring you into newness of life? You better believe it. So in closing, I only got through one point out of three. See, I'm just like Paul. Finally... Didn't happen. Sorry. That's a great thing about teaching verse by verse. We're just going to pick up verse 12 next week. Amen? So rejoicing in the Lord. One thing that can rob you of your joy. We didn't get to three. We got to one. The first one is 
self-righteousness and the legalism that comes from it, putting your faith in your accomplishments or in religious rituals. Next time we're going to see that the other things that can rob us is focusing on the past instead of pressing forward in the Lord and having a worldly focus instead of a heavenly one. Guys, you know what? Can I say this? Share my heart with you. We're going to close with this. I am so burdened for this county right now, I can't even tell you how much is gripping my heart. My prayer time, I, I, I want to see us as a church praying more. I want to see us as a church reaching outside of these walls more. Guys, I want to feed you and minister to you that you might go out and be contagious and draw others to Christ. We're not about building Calvary Chapel, but the kingdom of God. Amen? I just want to see people saved. Every believer this side of heaven, we ought to be burdened for every unbeliever this side of hell. It ought to consume us. May we start praying and asking, Lord, bring divine appointments today and don't let me miss it. Amen? Too busy. We're too busy walking along, doing things that we miss out on what God has for us. My heart would be that we could rejoice in the Lord because we're focused on Him all day long. Can I encourage you? Start your day with the Lord. Open up the Bible before you put your feet out of the bed. Spend a few minutes in prayer. Pray for your coworkers. Pray for your family. Pray for your neighbors. And watch what God will do. I told you that one of the most radical things that ever happened to me is God started putting my coworkers on my heart in Southern California. I had a list of 212 names in my glove box, and I would take it out on my 72-mile commute and just start praying for every one of them by name as I was driving to work. And you know what happened? Instead of being ridiculing of them, I started being broken for them. And before long, God put on my heart to have a Bible study there. Many of them got saved, including the guy that was like the biggest antagonist in the office who used to mock my faith all the time. One day, about six months later, I was baptizing him in my swimming pool. Prayer doesn't change God's mind. It changes our hearts. Amen? And God, light a fire in our hearts for Santa Cruz, Holy Cross. Does this place need Jesus or what? And who's, who are his emissaries in this county? It's us. Let's rejoice in the Lord and may our joy be contagious. May people see Jesus in us and want what we have. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you and worship you that we can find our peace and our hope in you. That we can indeed rejoice in the Lord for all that you have done for us. Lord, saved, going to heaven, filled with the Spirit of the living God, new creations in Christ. Lord, I do pray if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, that even now you would remove the scales from their eyes and open up their need for you as Lord and Savior. Hadn't planned on doing this just quickly with your heads bowed. If you're here today and you've not given your life to Jesus Christ, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. I'm not asking you to join Calvary Chapel. We don't even have membership here. You just show up. But here's what I'm telling you, that you, like all of us, are a sinner. And somebody's got to pay for your sin. Either you pay for it, or you allow the Lord to pay for it. You'll either look at the cross as a place of forgiveness and God's grace, or you'll look at the cross as a place of judgment that separates you from God. He's reaching out to you in love this morning. He brought you here by divine appointment. He says, I love you. I suffered and died. You might have eternal life. I'm holding out this free gift. And all He wants you to do is not try to be clothed in your own righteousness, but accept the free gift He's offering to you. Just say, Lord, yes, I admit I'm a sinner. I want to make you my Savior. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved to the glory of the Father. 
You've just simply confessed, Lord, I want you to be my Savior, or you will be saved to the glory of the Father. If that's your desire, to know for sure you're going to heaven, to make to pray that prayer this morning, and I will pray it with you. If that's your desire, I want you to simply do something very simple, which is just raise your hand and say, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. Is there anybody here at all? God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? Today's the day of salvation. God bless you, brother. Anybody else? The Bible says when one person comes to know Christ that all the angels in heaven rejoice. There's a party in heaven. Anybody else? You can know for sure you're going to heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I lift up each of these, Lord, that have raised their hand and signified they recognize their sinners in need of a Savior. And Lord, for those who have, just each of you pray silently in your own mind, or you can pray out loud if you want. Just repeat these words in your heart or with your mouth, those of you who raised your hand this morning. Here's what I want you to say. Just simply say, Dear Lord Jesus, I come to you this morning and I confess that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me for my sins, to make me a new creation in Christ. I believe that Jesus Christ is God, that He paid for my sin, that He suffered and died in my place, that He rose from the dead, and that He's coming back. Help me, Lord, to walk with you. Fill me with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. God is so good. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.